0: This is the Beyond Belief Sobriety Podcast, where we examine topics of interest to people who seek a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. In this episode, I spoke with Jan Winall, author of Treating Trauma and Addiction with the Felt Sense Polyvagal Model, a bottom-up approach. Jan is an adjunct lecturer at the University of Toronto in the Department of Social Work, and she is the director of Focusing on Borden, a psychotherapy and training center. I learned a great deal reading this book, and it was an honor to have the opportunity to speak with Jan. I hope you enjoy and get as much from listening to this episode as I did from participating in it. One note for listeners, there is a point during our conversation where Jan refers to a chart. The chart can be found on her website, janwinhall.com, and the video version of this episode is available on our YouTube channel and website, beyondbeliefsobriety.com. Jan, welcome to Beyond Belief Sobriety. I'm really excited to have you here and to learn more about your work.
1: Thank you, John.
0: I think where I'd I'd like to begin is, there's a lot of initials after your name. (laughs) I wonder if you could tell me what those are. Uh, (laughs) M-S-W-R-S-W-F-O-T?
1: Uh, well, it means that I'm a clinical social worker. I have a master's degree in social work, and the RSW just means that we're registered. So that's a way of um, uh, kind of uh, uh, managing quality, I guess. Control. We're we're parts of a of a college, and FOT stands for focusing oriented psychotherapist.
0: Gotcha. Okay, and you started your career. I guess working with a group of women who survived an incest yes. and that um, I guess really informed your view of addiction and brought you to where you are today. Noticing that these women were displaying um, physical, they were harming themselves physically as a way of dealing with their trauma. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about how those early experiences informed your understanding of addiction today? If it has, in fact.
1: Yes, and you're right. Uh, I start the book with a description of these, these young women that I was working with. And I was working in a psychiatric setting in a, in a general hospital, but in the psychiatric ward. And the women through that psychiatric lens were seen as having disorders and, um, and were really uh, labeled uh, in a very um, negative way. Um, often with diagnoses of, you know, borderline personality disorder and whatever. And I tried to to just let go, um, to just be with these women, um, with fresh ears, I call it, just to listen to what they were telling me without laying on that diagnostic and statistical manual diagnostic system. And what I heard them telling me quite clearly was that these behaviors that they were all engaged in uh, were helping them. And they didn't understand why or how. Uh, But together, um, we began to sort through what that was about. And that was in, you know, over 40 years ago in the uh, early feminist therapist days of working with women and trauma. And we knew back then that there was something about those behaviors that brought women from a, a flight fight state in the autonomic nervous system down into a state of shutting down and numbing and um, or it would propel them back the other way and we knew that by listening to what they were saying and i could see in their bodies these shifts in states From that hypervigilant place that we all know, right, of pumping adrenaline uh, to this the way in which addictive behaviors can then numb us and bring us into a more dissociated state. So that's how it started.
0: And you describe addiction, uh, I guess, from that as something that helps us in the short term, but in the long term doesn't work and causes harm. But it's just a behavior that we're not able to get out of that we can't stop. And that is a different way of thinking about it for, I think, a lot of people, myself included, when I think that we were taught from a really young age to focus on some substance as as being what causes an addiction. It's a really different way of thinking about it.
1: Yes, to to not talk about even so much. It isn't even so important what it is. What's really important is how it activates this process in the autonomic nervous system. And, um, you know, I came across these studies that uh, Bessel van der Kolk did with war veterans where he he was able to, um, and, and actually before that even with a fellow named Bleacher, and what they noticed was that when um, people that had a history of post-traumatic stress Uh, subjected to violent movies he showed them platoon that their bodies actually excreted endogenous opioids and they what they were able to test this through how long they could keep their hands in ice water and so what they discovered was that they were tapping into this way in which the body when we engage in these addictive behaviors that are self-harming they, The body excretes these endogenous opioids. It protects us. It's fascinating. It helps people to really make sense out of behaviors that we're taught are, you know, in some, uh, a lot of times would be framed as masochistic. But in actual fact, these, if we, if we relocate the treatment and the thinking and the conceptualizing into the body, and not in cognition. If we go into the body, we start to notice that the body has a natural way of healing itself. And when safety isn't available, the body goes into these states of defense. And then I see addictions as ways of propelling us from flight, fight to freeze, and then shut down and then back again when safety isn't available.
0: How would you define that um, safety? Is that just like the environment that you happen to be in at any given time?
1: You know, that is a huge question, isn't it? What is safety? And really, in many ways, there is no such safety, especially now in the world with the pandemic. But we do need to psychologically have a capacity to find a moment of safety in time. This is very important because that's in that state, we're able to think clearly. And we we are able to heal um, and avoid illness. So this gets us into polyvagal language. And polyvagal theory is a a new theory that Dr. Steve Porges um, has um, uh, authored. It's complex, but you can break it down and make it more and more uh, simple and digestible with time. So polyvagal theory is about the autonomic nervous system, and that's the part of our our body, our process that keeps us notice whether we're safe or not. And if we're not, we don't feel safe inside. We feel threat. Then the body goes into these states of mobilizing to try to help us. Right. So it's a very um, unconscious, instinctual sense of am I safe or is there a threat? I mean, after all, we're mammals. We're animals. And so when we're in this safe place, the, um, this vagus nerve, which is all about polyvagal theory, it's the 10th the cranial nerve. And it really carries this information about how safe we are from the body up to the brain. And it's it's a very unconscious process, right? We don't think to ourselves, "Oh, something just happened, and now I'm unsafe, and I have to run."
0: Right? It it's just, just how we evolved. It's it's just like a yes. mechanism it's for how survival. We
1: evolved in in terms of evolution. Yeah. I,
0: when I was reading about that um, part of the nervous system and how um, how how we react from the nervous system, we react to whatever our environment is. Um, I was thinking about um, another doctor I talked to a long time ago who was describing addiction, but from really the top down approach that you were writing about where she was looking at it as um, she said that all addiction is an addiction to uh, dopamine. So she was talking about how you have these chemicals in the brain that we're addicted to. And you also wrote about that. Like it's like these things happen, it's really complex. Like these things happen. You still have the dopamine spikes, but that's not necessarily what is you're addicted to.
1: Yes, I, th- I think from a, um, you know, there's so many different ways of understanding addiction. So I used Mark Lewis's work uh, because, uh, and he's the, the fellow who wrote the Biology of Desire, uh, Memoirs of an Addicted Brain. Mark's model is a learning model of addiction. And so this has to do with really integrating neuroplasticity, this way in which the brain changes. And and what we're wanting to do is really update these ways of understanding um, neuroplasticity um, and update our understanding of addiction through um, how brains change.
0: And that's so interesting. I did not know that brains changed. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 um, I heard, I've heard about neuroplasticity. I never really knew what it meant until I read this book. And I, and I, and I realized, oh, okay. So what she was saying about how the, your brain is diseased because it's changed isn't necessarily true because the brain is supposed to change.
1: Well, this is, this is the shift, right? It's like what, what the, the medical model would say is that when they often talk about addiction as a brain disease, they say, well, it's a disease because the brain changes. And then when I started really reading more and understanding Mark Lewis's work, he said, well, brains always change.
0: They always change.
1: This is neuroplasticity. And part of the problem is that our, our ways of understanding addiction are often not really updated. You know, they're are old ways of understanding that the brain is completely developed when we're born. And that's just not true. And what really made sense to me, John, was when I read Mark's work and I, I met with him, too. And, he, you know, he said brains look exactly the same in an addicted state as when you're in love.
0: Yeah, I thought that was interesting.
1: And, you know, we can all, all of us, even, you know, those of us who've never really even struggled with addiction, you know what it feels like when you're falling in love and you've got that, it's the dopamine hit and oxytocin, you, you know, it's like you think about the person all the time. You can't stop thinking about them. Um, The phone rings and you hope it's them and you get a little surge of excitement and dopamine. That's what addiction feels like, right? right? Yes, And so there's another way of understanding that um, addiction is a learned behavior. It's more than that and it's other things, but it is very much that. And the brains keep changing. So we can develop um, what's really exciting is that we can develop these, um, what Steve Porges calls neural exercises, but it's ways of working with uh, neural pathways in the brain, like meditation, meditation, Like, even things like playing the piano, going for a walk, being with friends. These are are, our practices, they're drawing, painting, writing that bring us back into that grounded place in the body and in the nervous system. I made a, I'm a very visual person, Mm -hmm. so I made a graphic of this that maybe we could share. Okay. Okay. And it, it helps people to. Be able to see where they are, okay. what state are they in, in their nervous system.
0: Okay. Let me share that real quick here.
1: B- beautiful. Yeah. So what? I'm a, just a very visual person. And so I, I started playing around with symbols as ways of illustrating the nervous system. Um, and this way we can really help people and ourselves to orient i call it orienting to the map of the nervous system and understanding that this is really crucial and very very key to understanding the nervous system and polyvagal theory what state we are currently in defines how we experience the world So if you look down at the bottom, uh, flock, I made it simple. I made it, um, six Fs, uh, because clients, I started with a clinician model and they went, Oh, (laughs) 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 what is this? So I said, okay, okay, let's, let's work, work with me. And so we made it into six Fs. Uh, and you know, people are like taking pictures of it on their phone. (laughs) And, uh, I may have a big one in my office that we use and we trace, where you're shifting in neurophysiological states throughout time, because we do this constantly. We're in the resting place down in flock, I called it, because this is this is about coming together. When we feel safe, we can be together and we feel trust and we feel able to really nourish each other. And this is how we're wired as mammals. We co-regulate with each other. We pick up on each other's nervous system. If, if I'm having coffee with you and you're all jittery and nervousy, you know, I'm going to feel that in my body, right? So that's my, a very much a part of a, a feature of polyvagal theory, this notion of co-regulating with each other. And so then we can, you know, if you move up and you can see flight fight up there, it's like a ball of wool, and this is the place where people often live who struggle with addiction and dissociation, um, with a lot of anxiety and fear. You're mobilizing. You're ready to to uh, to get out of there uh, because it doesn't feel safe. And you know, lots of folks never feel safe, right? If you're in living in a in a marginalized uh, community, you may have never known safety in your life. Certainly, the young women in that group didn't had never known safety. Um, And so then the other side is the fold and collapse place in the nervous system. And this is the place of depression, isolation, the body folds into itself. And this is actually the branch of the vagus that Steve Porges coined as the dorsal branch of this vagus nerve that is about dissociation and trauma. And this is new that he brought this into uh, our way of understanding the autonomic nervous system. And so then what i what I began to see was that, oh, so there there are these also blended states in the nervous system. Um, two that uh, Steve Porges talks about fun, you see, is this combination of flock and flight fight. So we feel safe when we're having fun. But there's also some adrenaline. Right. Right? Get it? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Uh, You can see easily where that shifts in bodies when you hear kids playing and they're laughing and they're running around. And then all of a sudden, somebody gets hurt and they shift into either flight and they're crying and trying to get away or fight and they're hitting the other person. Right. Yeah. So there you can see how bodies work very clearly. Right. Right. And then on the other side is flow. And that's a combination of immobilization with the shutting down place of fold, but also with safety. So it's not a dissociative place, a numbing place. It's the place where we have our practices of meditation or I practice something that I teach called focusing, which is working with, that kind of intuitive felt sense in the body of what's happening to us and for us. And then up at the top is freeze and fixate. And this is the state of addiction where these behaviors propel us from flight fight to fold or back again. And addictive behaviors are very efficient at doing this, right? They really do the trick. They do. They really do the trick and they, they're adaptive because if you're in a maladaptive environment and you're living at the top half of this graphic, you have no choices but to find something that's going to help you to survive. What it for you is unbearable pain, you know, whatever, whatever that is. And it, it, it doesn't, you know, it can be unbearable pain because your parents ignored you. It, or they did their best, but they didn't understand you it doesn't it's it doesn't have to be some you know really once in a lifetime horrible event. Trauma is it's it's with us and it occurs sometimes um in very circuitous ways.
0: Right. It's a, it's a very interesting topic. I, 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 um, I'm hearing about it on the periphery. I have a friend of mine who is really into it. Angela, who's on his podcast a lot, uh, very interested in the trauma. And then a couple of weeks ago, we watched Gabor Mate's film. Um, yes. And uh, that was really interesting. And he, and he mentioned that, you know, trauma can be just, you know, uh, being a baby and you, and your parents not picking you up when you're crying. So, oh yeah, you know, and and he talked also about the intergenerational aspect yes. of trauma, and yes, you know, I yes. started thinking about all kinds of things. Uh, just the way our society is set up can be traumatizing uh, for large groups of people, and it's just, uh, it's absolutely. yeah,
1: absolutely, absolutely, yeah. I love Gabor's work. He's um he's he's great, and he you know he also uh, really relates to polyvagal theory and and, and gets it. It's very complementary. The work. Um yeah
0: yeah it's a completely different way for me to think about this so i I got um interested in uh, well, I got involved with recovery when I was twenty five and i'm fifty nine now so it tells you how long I've been doing that and and so back at that time you know i I was doing that twelve step thing and it was really interesting to see what you wrote about that too and it's kind of frustrating that um that model. You know, it seems to be the most common model to try to help people, but it's not the best model for everybody. Exactly. You know, <laughs> exactly. And I, And you wrote it. You wrote pretty well about well. If you are the A B C D, then maybe yes. this is great for you. But not a yes. lot of people are fit in that that mode anymore.
1: <laughs> yes, or they try to make it fit. You know, they don't like certain things. You know, like they'll they'll say you know things like you don't have to believe in God. It can be a higher power, whatever. But part of the problem I find is often clients will say, "But I went to a meeting and they were praying, and I don't pray." And so I. And that I makes said, you not feel
0: safe. That's not, no, that's totally. a safety. I said factor. it's
1: like saying you're, you know, you accept vegetarians and then serving meat for dinner. <laughs> it doesn't feel good. It feel, you feel unseen. You feel that somehow it's not, it's not consistent, the message, right? So it's a wonderful thing. And I don't begrudge it to anybody when it works for you. It's wonderful. There's so many features about it that are great. Accessibility, for one thing. You know, and the uh, the the practicing uh, with, you know, with a sponsor and whatever. But the problem is that we're stuck in kind of like, this is it. Right. And this is not it. <laughs> There's many ways of understanding addiction and many different ways that people need to be in more somatic embodied practices. So this brings us to the felt sense piece of the model. Uh, and that comes from Jean Gendlin's work on focusing, and such such beautiful work. Where he, again, he noticed these shifts in the body when he was uh, studying people that did well in psychotherapy. He asked them, you know, well, what what um, what you know kind of worked for you, and he noticed these silent places where they were able to really go inside and touch into their felt experience in the body. And the shifts that would come, I began to appreciate as kind of shifts in the body that were shifts in neurophysiological states.
0: Do you know of any uh, resources uh, possibly that maybe I could link to later that could help people learn maybe how to tap into that? Um, yes, absolutely. Okay.
1: Um, so I would talk a lot about it on my website, janwinhall.com, And I teach focusing and focusing oriented therapy. And then there's also the wonderful, um, the International Focusing Institute. And they have uh, all of Jendlin's work in the library there. And it's also in my book, the website.
0: Okay. Yeah. And that's all about um, really kind of understanding what your body is feeling now. Yes. At this time. hmm.
1: Yes, it's a little bit like if um, we were friends and I had a problem, you know, I woke up in the morning and I thought, oh, I've got this like sick feeling in my stomach and I'm tight in my chest and I was going to go to the gym, but I just feel awful. And I call you up and I say, let's go have coffee. And we come together and you know how to listen to me without interrupting, without judging. And you know how to, to really help me to hear what's going on for me in this tightness in my chest. And I kind of take a moment to go inside to my body and I notice the tightness. And then I just get curious about what's going on in my life, what's happened over the last week or so. And then usually, you know, something we know in this unconscious, implicit place, we know, you know, oh, boy, I had that horrible fight with my boss. And then I tell you a bit about the story. And if you give me a sense of compassion with no evaluation, and I can be with that uncomfortable place inside and really recognize it and honor it, honor my feelings, and you can keep me company by co-regulating with compassion, very often something starts to shift, right? the the stomach feels better, the tightness loosens. And I think that's a loosening that moves us often from the sympathetic branch of, uh, oh, down into a resting place of safety. And then we feel better. We feel better. It feels like magic, but it's not magic. It's how bodies work.
0: Yeah. And I find it so interesting that and i've I've always kind of thought about this, that um so often we forget that the brain is an organ of the body and it's connected to the body. And it seems like oftentimes that we um, think that the brain is some something different and not somehow connected to the rest of the body. But it's just an organ, just like any other organ, you know yes, so. and it,
1: and it it has, you know, branches and features that th- that go throughout the body. And 80% of the information that comes up to our brainstem is visceral. It's bodily information about what, that's why guts get activated with stress. Heart rate, heart rate goes up with stress. Um, You know, that's why biofeedback is often very helpful too, right? Because you're teaching people to become more aware of their body and through breathing, So, you know, again, a very simple practice that we can do that activates that calm ventral branch of the vagus nerve that brings us to safety is just something like breathing in for three and breathing out for five. When you extend the exhalation breath, it activates that part of the vagus nerve, which is above the diaphragm and up into the face. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've always I've always and I have and I and I know I'm not different. Other people have experienced this too. Uh they will experience depression in a physical way. You yes. can feel it phys- physically.
1: Yes. Well, <laughs> yes, absolutely. If you look at the model, you look at fold and shutdown, that's depression and depression is physical. <laughs> All of the states in the body are physical.
0: Yeah. 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 You it's
1: feel just... what? You feel John like sluggish?
0: Right. You, yes. you
1: feel immobilized and kind of like pulling in and isolating mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and not wanting to move. You're immobilized. Right. A
0: real tightness and a real tightness in the chest is what what we would feel. Is a um a real yeah, just a physical sense of of being depressed. It's not it's not something that's just your a thought. It's just a, it's just no. a, yeah. It's and a when the
1: tightness comes as well, you end up with this hybrid state of some anxiety and then also this dorsal folding in collapsing place of immobilized. And so then we can learn these exercises, these things to do when we're in these different states that help to bring us back to flock, back to grounding. So, for example, when you feel this sense of depression in the dorsal branch of the vagus, which is below the diaphragm in the body, we want to just go to bed. But the very thing that we have to do that I tell clients is you have to override your autonomic nervous system, and get your butt out of bed.
0: Isn't that interesting? That, that, I find that interesting because um, I, I – well, just uh, just from personal experience, I had a therapist many years ago. He's an older, older man. He's long deceased. And probably back in the 1940s or 1950s, he worked in a mental hospital with depressed patients. And he found that just keeping them active, um, if they were just painting walls or doing anything – helped with their depression. And he always encouraged me that even if I felt like just laying down or retreating or whatever, to force yourself to go for a walk, to do something like that. Well, he
1: was, he was on to something. He was on to mobilizing because when, we, when we're immobilized, we're, we're really, we've surrendered, we've given up. Because you know when we go to flight fight, there's hope. It's like okay, what are we going to do to get out of (laughs) here? Makes sense. Yeah. But but when the body shifts neurophysiologically to dorsal, you've surrendered. You're playing dead.
0: Oh boy, that makes so much sense. You can't run
1: and you you can't flee. You can't escape. So then the body goes to hibernating to to try to survive.
0: Yeah, it's yeah. really helpful to think, to remember that we are mammals, that we, yes. that, that we are just like you know, <laughs> the other creatures in the, on the planet, you know, because it makes sense, you know, when you observe them and yes, I'm like, I'm like you. And that's like exactly you. what we would do. Yeah,
1: yeah, and we can really see it with our pets, you know, with dogs and cats, and we see how they behave and when our little pets look in, into our eyes. It's like wow we're che- we're really connecting there as mammals, right? And they bond with us. They co-regulate with us. If we're upset, they get upset.
0: Now, I was thinking about that as I was read as I was reading, I was thinking about that how, you know, I know if my dog is angry or worried or afraid or whatever. <laughs> yeah. You know, just like yeah. I would with us. So, yeah. I I I was wondering, I'm just kind of curious to get your um opinion on uh before we leave, but the, the maybe the collective trauma that well, we are all going through right now, I don't even know if if we are even close to coming to terms with with what this is. Are you Are you noticing anything in your practice about just this pandemic and how it's impacting people? And do you foresee any long range consequences to what we're going through?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, people are really much more dysregulated and confused about their behavior. Uh, You know, I'm hearing a lot of kind of paradoxical stuff. It's like, part of me wants to go out and be with people. I want to move back into flock. And the other part of me is just so used to being in this folded down, isolated state. Wow. Yeah. And I'm shifting back and forth, having to kind of, and I've noticed this in myself, having to kind of force myself to go and see my friends, which I'm thinking, what? Is there something crazy about me? And then once I get there, one of my friends the other day, she she was she became closer to me physically because we've both been double backs. And she said, now I remember how much I miss you. Whereas whereas when we hunker down in more of a dorsal place, we're just isolating to try to cope. And so, yeah, I, I mean, it's a very rich time to understand ourselves through our autonomic nervous system, because that's all about how do we stay safe? And that's the agenda right now.
0: Well, it's really interesting in the recovery community. So um, they all went, we all went online and everybody was having their meetings online. Yes. And for those of us who could stand it, I'm not one, (laughs) but uh, so they were, so they were meeting online and then as things were getting better and now they're not better anymore, but as things were kind of getting better, Uh, and people were getting vaccinated, we thought we were going to go back to meeting again. But did you know that going back was not as easy or as successful as we imagined it would be when we first went into um, isolation, I guess? It was not that easy to break out of of our new environment of just being, you know, isolated from everybody, <laughs> even though we like being with people, it was not just like automatic yes, that we're going to go.
1: The, yeah. Because the body has shifted into more of that dorsal state, which is dangerous with addiction. Um, Cause you can see, you know, in the model that that addiction is the opposite of the the state of flock right you don't it's not about socially engaging with other people it's about engaging with what you're addicted to so the group is very important and yeah people are finding it hard to shift out of that state of immobilization and isolation and back into engagement and this is where we have to really talk to ourselves to say we need to do it we just have to tell ourselves you got to go and then then we feel better too usually when we go
0: yeah so I just think it's I think it's just an interesting lesson that I you know, I, I just have this feeling that um I, I just know that everything is changing and when 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 this passes in some way, it's not gonna be as simple and easy to go back to whatever the normal was or the new normal will be uh it's going to be it's going to anyway i was, uh, thank you for your thoughts on that because i i found i find that to be kind of an, an interesting subject and something that's pretty relevant to everybody right now in the world absolutely
1: so. yeah yeah absolutely
0: well um <laughs> is there anything that i missed that we should have covered um with this topic
1: the one thing i want to say is that um i think in in many ways What's starting to really surface in terms of the lack of safety in the world, Uh, you know, when we're given messages like go home and stay safe and we don't have a safe home to go to, um, you know, marginalized groups are really coming forward. And it's really speaking to, um, you know, how dislocated, how alienated we really are in the world. And the good news about that is that it's, it's coming forward. What we do with it depends a lot on how much safety we can create in our own selves and in our, in our communities to be able to reach out and really be there much more for each other, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Here's hoping. Here's hoping, yeah. So uh, I, I remain, I will be optimistic. And, uh, I, you know, people that do work like you do is going to be very, very helpful for how we do um, think about this um, in mm-hmm. the future because it's going to be a big deal. So thank yeah. you, Jan, for your work. And thank you for, for all the media appearances that you're doing. I mean, that's uh, getting, <laughs> it's really important to get this word out like this. It's very it's, helpful. It's,
1: uh, it's hard. You know, it's, it's like when you have three minutes on breakfast television to do what, 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 what we just did and what, I don't know. <laughs> oh God, Sean, honestly, but you know, it's, it's such an incredible privilege and opportunity to get that word out. Right.
0: Yeah. And thank yeah. you. Uh, it'll be great for the listeners of this podcast uh, because they uh, they are looking for science and evidence based um, oh, yeah. uh, ways of dealing with uh, addiction and the the this. Um, subject of trauma is coming up in our community all the time now so it's yeah, what everybody's talking about.
1: the worlds the worlds are starting to bridge and this is really my mission is to bridge those worlds of trauma therapy and addiction I hope people will come find me at Janwinhallcom com, and uh, you can buy my book there and there's lots of things going on i'm running groups and using the model to understand you know this process of what we're calling unfolding <laughs>